Well, as we begin today's study, we rejoin the Israelites on their journey from slavery in Egypt to Canaan, the promised land. And in between those two places is the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that God is going to teach, train, and shape the Israelites into a people who are ready to step into their destiny. It's the same thing God is doing in your life and in my life every single day. He is teaching, he is training, and he is shaping us into people who are ready to step into our destiny, which is to rule and reign with Jesus in the ages to come. Here in Exodus 17, we're going to see Israel go through two unique challenges. The first one will involve water coming from a rock. And if you're thinking, I know this story, it's the one where Moses screws up. You need to know this is a different event from that. That one takes place later on in a couple of years in Numbers chapter 20. The second event today involves a literal battle that is not ultimately won with weapons. So let's see what the Lord wants to teach us today as we jump into Exodus 17, beginning at verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. Rephidim basically means rest stop. It was a point between the wilderness of sin and the wilderness of Sinai, apparently closer to the Sinai side. And it goes on and says, but there was no water for the people to drink. Have you ever been on a road trip and uh, you've been driving for a while and you really need a place to, to rest and you can see one coming up, it's glorious, there's the sign, two miles, rest stop coming up, you pull over, you head into the place where you were hoping to rest and you get there and it's locked, can't get in, door is chained up. Those feelings of frustration and desperation were exponentially greater for these Israelites because the issue at hand was water to drink. You know, that thing that's essential for life. That's why we read in verse two, therefore the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Moses says, I'm just doing my job. I'm just following God's instructions. You're not moaning at me, you're moaning at God. Verse three, and the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? If you haven't noticed over the past few studies, this is becoming the Israelites' go-to complaint. But as usual, though it seems very easy for us to judge them, when we look a little more closely at their actions, we begin to see ourselves to an uncomfortable degree. Let me explain. As we've talked about many times at this point, the evidence that Israel had seen was overwhelming. Their experiences with God made it inarguable that he was real, powerful, cared about them, and would act to protect and provide for them. And yet here they are complaining aloud that they've been brought out into the wilderness to die. Well, what's going on? What's going on? They are falling prey to a lie that derails the faith of many to this very day. It's the belief that if I've heard from God, if I'm obeying God, if I'm in the will of God, 
then my life will be smooth sailing. Smooth sailing. It's the wrong belief that the evidence of God's favor on my life is comfort. And when that doesn't happen, we start complaining. So write this down, it's your first fill in. The Israelites wrongly believed that obeying God should result in comfort. They wrongly believed that obeying God should result in comfort. We all know and understand intrinsically that comfort is not always what is best for us. There are endless examples from exercise to healthcare to financial responsibility. And because our heavenly father is an absolutely good father, he is more concerned with what is best for us than he is with our comfort. Let me say it again. He's more concerned with what is best for us than he is with our comfort. And what is best for us is whatever makes us more like Jesus. Because the more we become like Jesus, the more we will be able to enjoy eternity. The more we will be entrusted with in the ages to come. I'm going to say it one more time for the people in the back. Because our heavenly father is an absolutely good father. He is more concerned with what is best for us than he is with our comfort. And thank God for that. Because if God gave us the choice, we'd probably choose comfort most days. Continuing on in verse four. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Wasn't easy to be Moses. Wasn't easy to be Moses. And as a pastor, I just want to share with you what sticks out to me when I read this verse. Moses' heart was to see his people make it to the promised land. He wanted to see them step into their destiny. Man, he loved his people. But here's the key. In order to see those good things happen, Moses also had to completely ignore their opinions and instead focus on what the Lord was telling him to do. Moses had to lead the Israelites wherever God said to lead them, even if they didn't want to go. And as a pastor, it strikes me that if you want to be a shepherd of God's people, you have to come to terms with the fact that the best way you can lead people is by obeying the Lord, whether the people are on board with it or not, whether they want to hear it or not, whether they want to go or not, whether they want to talk about it or not. Think about this. If Moses had been concerned with the approval of his people, the Israelites would never have made it to the promised land. Let that sink in. If Moses had been concerned with the approval of his people, the Israelites would never have made it to the promised land. I say this because I love you, church. Wherever you go to church and wherever you go to church over the course of your life, if you move, wherever you go to church, wherever you are, make sure you're in a church where the pastors care more about pleasing God than pleasing you. Because those kinds of pastors are going to lead you in the right direction. They're going to lead you to where the Lord wants you to go. And dads, you are the shepherd of your family. Lead them as the Lord has commanded you to lead them, whether they agree with you or not, whether they're enthusiastic about it or not, whether they think it's the best idea or not because it's the best thing for them. God's way is always the best thing for them.
write this down. Godly leaders act out of concern for God's approval above anyone else's. I'll say it again. Godly leaders act out of concern for God's approval above anyone else's. Verse five, and the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, that would be the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall underline the rest of this. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. As we saw last week with the manna, God responds with incredible grace and kindness to his people, even when they're complaining. He tells Moses to strike a specific rock, and that when he does, fresh water will flow out of it. The image is loaded with symbolism and meaning, and our brother, the Apostle Paul, breaks it down for us in 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read it to you. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That's weird. This rock that Paul's talking about followed the Israelites. How's that possible? Well, he goes on and explains. He says, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. Just as Jesus went before the Israelites and behind the Israelites as the angel of the Lord, he was also symbolically the rock which Moses struck. Let me explain further. The rock was struck with Moses' rod, which symbolizes God's presence and judgment in scripture. And the rod was a dried branch from a tree. There's a connection there back to the tree in Eden where our relationship with God was severed by sin. And the connection continues because Jesus, of course, would be crucified and judged by God the Father for our sin on the tree of Calvary the cross. Our relationship with the Lord was lost at a tree, but it was also restored at a tree because Jesus, the rock, was struck, was smitten by the judgment of God in our place. And the definitive biblical text on all of this is Isaiah 53. But for example, we can't read the whole thing. Verses four and five of Isaiah 53 say this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Write this down. Jesus, our rock, was smitten by God's judgment in our place. Jesus, our rock, was smitten by God's judgment in our place. What came out of Jesus when he was smitten, when he was speared by the soldier who wanted to check if he was still alive? What came out? Blood and water. Water. When water appears in scripture for cleaning, it's always a picture of the scriptures. When it appears for refreshment, it's always a picture of the Holy Spirit. In order for this miraculous water to flow from this rock, the rock 
had to be smitten. So make a note of this. Before the Holy Spirit could be given to us, Jesus the rock had to be smitten. Before the Holy Spirit could be given to us, Jesus the rock had to be smitten. In John chapter 7, we read this. On the last day, that great day of the feast, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That living water, the Holy Spirit, could not be given to believers until Jesus had died, rose again, and returned to heaven. Back to our text with the rest of verse six. It says, and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah, which means tempted, and Meribah, which means contention, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted or tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? I just want to point out the quality passive-aggressive behavior by Moses right here. He says, I'm going to name this place tempted and contention because of your complaining and testing of the Lord's patience. That's some high quality passive aggressive behavior right there. And verse seven gives us another insight into the thinking of the Israelites at this time. And it's what we talked about earlier. Because their circumstances were challenging, the Israelites questioned whether or not God was with them. Again, their wrong belief was if God was with them, then everything would be comfortable, surely. And we've talked about why that is not the case. When David, a man whose life was was full of highs and lows, successes and failures, mountains and valleys, seasons of overwhelming joy and seasons of death-like depression, when that David wrote about the presence of God, this is what he said in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. If you belong to Jesus, then his presence in your life is a constant. It's a constant. It is not dictated by your circumstances or your location or even your behavior. If you belong to Jesus, his presence is with you. Always, no matter what. We read in John 7 that Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I want you to write this down and then we're going to talk about this. This is huge. The reason God allows us to go through times of dryness is that we might once again become thirsty. The reason God allows us to go through times of dryness is that we might once again become thirsty. In John 7, do you know who responded to Jesus' invitation? Pretty much nobody. Nobody. Why? Why? because they weren't thirsty yet. 
They had other things that they thought would satisfy their existential thirst. If a person doesn't want living water, the life that Jesus is offering, they'll usually only change their mind when they get desperately thirsty. Their life has to fall apart. They have to realize that the thing they thought would satisfy them, the thing they thought would quench their thirst, will not. And for us believers, sometimes our relationship with the Lord becomes monotonous. It becomes religious and ritualistic. So the Lord allows us to go through a little bit of spiritual dryness so that we become thirsty for him again, so that once again we will seek him earnestly. And when we seek him, we'll always find him. We'll always find him. The Lord allows us to become spiritually thirsty so that we will come to him for living water and be satisfied. Now we shift gears into our second event of Exodus 17, the battle with the Amalekites. The Amalekites were one of the many pagan tribes in this area, and they were powerful. They were no joke. They were descendants of the Nephilim, for those of you who understand that Genesis 6 reference. They were a tribe that included giants. And we read in verse 8, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Why? Well, presumably over the water. Because when you suddenly have gushing fresh water in the middle of what is normally a wilderness dry area, it's valuable. It is valuable. This is straight up supply and demand economics. Amalek looks at what they got and he says, I'll take that. Thank you very much. Verse nine. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became weary So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Incredible. When Moses holds up his hands, Israel begins beating back the Amalekites. But if he drops his hands, the Amalekites gain the upper hand. And inevitably, if you've ever tried holding out your hands for more than 10 minutes, more than a minute for some of us, Moses gets tired. And that's when Aaron and her come alongside him and hold up his hands so that Israel keeps winning the battle. You know, there's so much we can talk about here, more than we have time for in this study. So I'm gonna highlight some things and just ask that you would meditate and study these things further on your own this week. Ask the Lord to show you something that's just for you, and I believe he will. Lifted hands were a gesture of blessing, honor, and worship at this time in history. For example, in Psalm 28, David wrote, hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. And contrary to what you might think, what you might have been taught, it was not a tradition that was intended to be lost over the ages. Because when we get to the New Testament, Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, and says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. 
Paul told Timothy that this was not a personal preference. It was something he desired to see all men doing everywhere. Jeff, are you saying that we're supposed to be lifting our hands when we pray and when we worship? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Now, obviously, we can't do it nonstop for extended periods of time because we get tired, but it should be a very normal part of the way that we pray and worship. It's a means of engaging our bodies with our spirits. It's a way to get our bodies in sync with what our spirits are doing in ministering to the Lord. It's not a denominational or a personal preference. It's biblical. It's biblical. We're seeing that right here. Do it. Try it. Take a step of faith if you've never done it before. Lift your hands when you pray to the Lord. Even in private, lift your hands when you worship. Even in private and in church. So we have Aaron who speaks of the priesthood and ministering to the Lord through things like offerings, prayer, and worship. Aaron speaks of the priesthood. And then we have this guy, Hur. And we know basically nothing about him. We just know he was apparently a faithful man among the Israelites. The only thing we really know is that his name means white cloth. And what does white cloth, white robes, white clothing speak of in the scriptures? Speaks of righteousness. The white robes that Jesus will clothe us in which represent his righteousness. So when you put these two things alongside Moses, Aaron representing the priesthood, Ur, whose name means white cloth, I can't help but think of James 5.16, which tells us the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I love that scripture. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Moses' desire to see God move was supported by ministry to the Lord, by the priesthood, by Aaron, representing prayer, worship, intercession. And he was supported, on the other hand, by her representing righteousness. And so when these things come together, when earnest prayer, righteousness, ministry to the Lord, worship, all come together, hey, God does mighty things. He does mighty, mighty things. I encourage you to think on that more. Verse 13, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So just think with me, if Joshua and the Israelites were victorious, what does that tell us about how long Moses' arms stayed raised? Well, it tells us that he stayed in that posture, arms raised until the battle was won. That's how long he stayed in that position, until the battle was won. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And if you've been to our church for a while, then you know that in the original language, that verse actually says, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and it will be opened to you. How long do we pray about that situation, about that person, about that sickness, until it is resolved one way or the other? We do not quit. We keep asking. We keep seeking. We keep knocking. Jesus was giving us an insider tip about how things work in heaven. He was saying, listen, trust me, as an insider of heaven, it is worth your time to keep asking, to keep praying, to persist in prayer. 
And with that in mind, I want to ask that you would turn to Luke chapter 18 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 18, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book. Luke chapter 18, we'll pick it up in verse 1. And what Jesus does here is he tells a parable about persisting in prayer. He's pretty plain about that because in verse one, it says, then he spoke a parable to them that, and then underline this, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. I love that verse. Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Hard as I just said, listen, this is Jesus connected to God the Father more than any other person who has ever lived. And he's saying, listen, if you knew my Father like I know him, you wouldn't give up in your prayers. You wouldn't give up. If you knew him like I know him, you would never give up in praying. Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And Jesus said this. There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me, for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, "Ah, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? In this parable, there's a widow. And as some of you may know, a widow had almost no rights at this time in history. She wasn't allowed to own property. She wasn't allowed to have a job. Her only real Hope, if she was a widow, was remarrying or having some extended family who would take her in and provide for her. Something else a widow couldn't do is go to court. And that's why this judge is able to just ignore her and put her off for a while. And this judge is is clearly a bad dude. Twice we are told specifically that he doesn't fear God and he doesn't care about people. And yet he ends up helping this woman out because he doesn't want to be nagged to death. He doesn't want to be nagged to death. And that's why you may have heard it taught that this parable tells us that if we just wear God down, if we just drive him crazy with our prayers, if we just nag God to death, then our prayers will be answered. But that's not what's going on. Jesus is drawing our attention to a contrast because you see, we don't come before an uncaring judge. We come before a loving father. Write that down. We don't come before an uncaring judge. In contrast, on the contrary, we come before a loving father. Another time, Jesus explained the contrast this way. He said, what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. Now we're out of room on the outline, so just scribble these points down wherever you can. Some other observations I want us to be aware of. The woman went before an uncaring judge alone, but we come before a loving father through Jesus. 
not alone. John the Apostle wrote, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That's 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We notice as well that we don't approach our Father in a courtroom. We come before a throne of grace. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I love this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The point of the whole parable, what Jesus wanted us to understand, what he wants us to understand is that if this widow can get help from an unjust judge who doesn't care about her and doesn't fear God, How much more will your heavenly father who loves you and cares about you help you in your time of need? That's why all the way back in verse one, we were told that Jesus taught this parable that men always, always ought to pray and not lose heart. Do not lose heart in light of who it is that we're praying to. In light of how much he loves us, we always ought to pray and not lose heart. Back in verse eight, Jesus said, nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? When Jesus comes to rapture his church, will he find a church full of faith? Will he find people who pray and don't give up because they actually believe that when they pray, their heavenly father hears, listens, and responds because he loves us? Will he find men and women who believe that if the answer hasn't come yet, God has a reason and it's for our good? Our actions reveal what we truly believe. This woman showed up day after day and nagged this judge into action because she believed he actually had the power to help her, to change her situation. Jesus is trying to tell us that our heavenly father is there. He's available to us with solutions to our problems. The only question is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Do our actions, the way we pray, show that we believe that. Or if we don't get an immediate answer, do we give up and lose heart because we don't really believe God cares. We don't really believe he cares enough to respond to our prayers. What do our actions say about what we believe about our heavenly father? Last observation on that Luke passage, our father wants our prayers to be based on believing, not begging, believing, not begging. Because when you beg You defame the character of God as my children would defame my character if they begged for food because it would imply that I might not feed them. So we're not supposed to go to God begging saying like, oh God, I know you're so busy and I know it's not important, but my marriage is falling apart and if you could help something, that would be great, you know. 
you know, if you want to, or just please, 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 please do something. Please do something for once. Just do something, please. You see, our heavenly father is honored when our prayers reveal that we believe he's loving, that he's good, and that he takes care of his children. The Bible tells us over and over to pray that way. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because Jesus understands. He understands our human frailty. He's our advocate with the Father. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be embarrassed. We don't have to feel guilty. Our sins are covered by Jesus. He understands our human frailty. And we can trust the character of the Father. Let's head back to Exodus 17, 14 and wrap things up. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So God promises here to completely remove the Amalekites from the face of the earth. And later on, God will command Israel to wipe them out. Why? Well, a few reasons, some of which I mentioned earlier. Firstly, they were descended from the Nephilim. And if you want to understand why that's such a big deal, go back and listen to our message on Genesis 6. There's definitely no short way to explain that to you. Secondly, they were wicked, perverse, and evil beyond redemption, likely because of this genetic corruption of being associated with the Nephilim. They just hated good and loved evil, and they had been that way for a long time. They were beyond redemption. They were beyond saving. Thirdly, they directly opposed God and his people. They knowingly opposed God, took sides against God intentionally. And Deuteronomy 25 tells us that during Israel's wilderness wanderings, the Amalekites would attack the old, the weak, the young, and the stragglers at the back of the pack. Generally, when the Amalekites show up in scripture, they're going to be a picture of the flesh, that, that part of us that wants to live for our own desires rather than the things of God, that part of us that must be put to death every day in order to live for the Lord. Verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. <laughs> banner, banner. The Lord is my banner in Hebrew, Yahweh Nisi. For he said, because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, Moses says, hey, the Lord will fight for us. The Lord will fight for us. Why the need? Why the need for persistence in prayer? Have you ever wondered that? Why doesn't God just give an immediate response? It's because something happens in us as we pray. Something happens to us. We're, we're changed as we pray. We're drawn closer to the Lord. We become more aligned with his will. We begin to want the things that he wants. Prayer changes us and it's about getting closer to the Lord. And so the Lord doesn't always give an immediate response, sometimes for various reasons, but one of the big ones is prayer changes us. And sometimes he's saying there's some work that needs to happen in our relationship. And so we're going to use this situation to draw us closer in relationship. Wrapping up with these thoughts, how's your soul doing right now, right now? How's your spiritual life? How's your spirit doing? Is it dry? Are you tired? Are you exhausted? Are you worn out? In Psalm 105, 41, we read this about the Lord. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river, like a river. You see, if you will go back 
to the place of remembering what Jesus has done for you on the cross. If you will go back to praising and thanking the Lord for that, meditating on what he's done for you, back to the table of communion, you will begin to find that life gushing in dry places like a river. And if you're feeling spiritually dry, it's because God is trying to make you thirsty for him, to get you back to him. Go to him. Go back to the tree of Calvary. Think on it. Thank him for for it. Worship him there. And I believe you'll begin to find refreshment as the Holy Spirit ministers to you in that place. And lastly, I'm so encouraged by this story about Joshua battling the Amalekites while Moses is up on the hill with Aaron and her because the victory was not won because of Joshua's leadership ability or Moses' leadership ability. The victory wasn't won because of military strategy or intellectual brilliance, overwhelming ability, or because Joshua was really good with the sword. It was won through prayer. It was won through prayer. And in the New Testament, we're told that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Every single battle that we're having in life is a, is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. And it's won through prayer. It's won in the place of prayer. The battle was not won in the valley. It was won on the mountain. It was prayer that determined the outcome, not the actual fight. The actual fight that happened in the physical realm was just the result of what was taking place in the spiritual realm. Do not get caught up with what's happening in the physical realm. The real battle is taking place in the spiritual realm. And we have victory through Jesus, through Jesus, as we call on his name in prayer. So be encouraged by that. It doesn't matter if you're not the smartest. It doesn't matter if you're not the bravest. Man, if you can pray, God can do great things and will do great things in you, through you, and for you. And so with that, wherever you are, would you just bow your head? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the comfort of your word, Lord. I thank you right now that if anyone watching this or hearing this is in a place of spiritual dryness, it's because you love them and you are drawing them to yourself. So I pray right now that if that is a specific person that Lord, you would just stir their heart. They would just hear so clearly from you, I am drawing you to myself. And Lord, that even now you would begin to meet them with your presence, with the living water that is your Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you in advance for refreshing the souls of those who are weary and those who are thirsty. And then Father, I thank you that you are good and you are loving and you care about your children. And if we remember that, Lord, we will not give up in prayer. We will not lose heart. We will not lose hope. So Father, help us to honor you by praying in a way that reflects that. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now, because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, 
click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.